Romans chapter 1, and tonight we'll begin in verse 21. Romans 1, 21, and tonight we'll go through verse 23. But for context, since this is the end of the paragraph that we're actually studying tonight, would you read along with me, beginning in verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world has invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Paul explained that those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, speaking of those in verse 18, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness do so willingly in the face of indisputable rational evidence and are therefore without excuse before God. Paul's key assertion then in these first three verses, verses 18 through 20, is that they are without excuse. God has given them enough revelation in nature to recognize that he does indeed exist. Now, tonight in verses 21 through 23, Paul elaborates on this assertion and makes it clear that it is a decision of the will, not a lack of knowledge, that causes people to be in their lost condition. I'll say that one more time because this is a a summary of what we'll look at tonight. It is the decision of the will, not, not a lack of knowledge, that causes people to be in their lost condition. Or I could say to remain in their lost condition because Paul will explain later in this book that they were born into a lost condition. Paul accentuates the accountability of people by maintaining that their failure to glorify God and give thanks to God takes place even though they knew God. Those who refuse to accept the revelation of God will suffer the inevitable result of their own decision. It seems to me that many folks would like to blame God for their rejection of God. But Paul says, no, if you reject God, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. Many people do reject God today. Many people that we look up to, uh, I think of George Clooney, he said, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't, believe, I don't know if I believe in God. Angela Jolie, there doesn't need to be a God for me. There's something in people that's spiritual, that's God-like. Jack Nicholson, I don't believe in God, he says. I can still work up an envy for someone who has a faith, but I don't believe in God. Nick Nolte, I have difficulty with God and with beliefs. 
you have to question, if God created man in his image, what kind of image is God? And Bruce Willis, organized religions in general, in my opinion, are dying forms. Modern religion is the end trail of modern mythology. All well-known people and all people who have enough evidence, according to what Paul says here, to know there's a God. But these people all, well-known people, very fine actors, and, and they may be very fine people individually, I don't know. But they have willfully suppressed the knowledge of the truth in their life. Bertrand Russell, the Nobel Prize winner and well-known British atheist, once remarked, I observe that a very large portion of the human race does not believe in God and suffers no visual punishment in consequence. And if there were a God, I think it very unlikely that he would have such an uneasy vanity as to be offended by those who doubt his existence. And in comments dripping with atheistic sarcasm, he adds, The raw fruits of the earth were made for human sustenance. Even the white tails of rabbits, according to some theologians, have a purpose, namely to make it easier for sportsmen to shoot them. He did have a good sense of humor, I've got to give him that. There are, it is true, some inconveniences. Lions and tigers are too fierce. The summer is too hot, and the winter is too cold. But these things only began after Adam ate the apple. Before that, all animals were vegetarians, and the season was always spring. If only Adam had been content with peaches and nectarines, grapes and pears and pineapples, these blessings would still be ours. Good old Bertrand. Russell's problem was not one of limited knowledge or a less than normal intellect. Any re reading that I've ever done of him would lead us to believe that he had a, an above average intellect. It's not a problem of knowledge. It's a problem of the will. Russell's problem was one of a darkened heart that refused to act on the information that he had. Russell's rejection of God was Bertrand Russell's fault, not God's fault. When asked one time, um, what would he say to God if after death he discovered that God really, God really did exist and he stood before him? Bertrand Russell replied, I would say to him that I would have believed in you if only you had given me more evidence. God gave enough evidence. Paul says to Bertrand Russell and to those like him, you had enough evidence. I don't read, I don't quote these famous celebrities in order to get you mad at them. In fact, the publication that I quoted from is a publication that would have you pray for these people. And I would ask you to do the same thing. Because if, if you just listen to what I said and they get mad because they're an atheist. Now, Bertrand Russell's dead. You can't do anything for him. But if you just get mad that they don't agree with him, that they're lost and on their way to hell, that's not really what God would have us to do. He would like for us to pray for those people. So pray for Jack Nicholson. Pray, pray for Angela Jolie. Pray for Bruce Willis. Pray for Nick Nolte. A lot for Nick Nolte. <laughs> The way he behaves, he needs a lot of prayer. He's not going to make it to be able to, to receive the gospel. I like all of those in terms of their acting ability, but they're, as uh, Gene Brown used to say, lost as Hogan's ghost. And they need prayer desperately because they have enough information. That's not the problem. The problem is that they have willfully chosen to suppress that information. And that's a tragedy, a real tragedy. Now, in verses 21 
through 23, again, the Apostle Paul is elaborating on the assertion that he made that they are without excuse. That's why verse 21 starts in the English with the word for. In Greek, it's actually dioti, D-I-O-T-I, and it probably uh, indicates an explanation of what went before. So the word for is okay, but it probably is better understood because. So he's explaining why these people are without excuse. So we could do it this way. In the last part of verse 20, being understood through what has been made so that they were without excuse. And we could have a theoretical objector if someone was in the back of the room and they would raise their hand and say, well, why are they without excuse, Paul? And so Paul then goes on to explain it in verse 21 with this opening word, dioti, uh, which probably ought to be understood because, because even though they knew God, and that's a translation of the, of the participle, participle that I think is, is fair. And uh, Paul's use of this phrase, new God or no God, is normally restricted to believers. Remember our discussion in Philippians 3.10 about the highest goal that Paul had in life? He, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and, and being conformed to his death. That's a different kind of knowing God. And we studied that at that time. But knowing God in Romans 1.21 has a much more restricted usage. Along the lines of awareness. Paul's aw- I mean, Paul is saying these people are aware of God. He's not saying they know God like the Apostle Paul wanted to know God or like you want to know God. So it's awareness, which is certainly not Paul's line of reasoning in his autobiography in Philippians. People have a real knowledge that God exists. This is a truth upon which Paul insists. He's not theorizing here. He's very dogmatic about it. And as we said last time, this is something that you can use to your advantage when witnessing to people. They can come at you with all the garbage they can throw at you, but deep down, deep down in your soul, I want you to know that deep down in their soul, they know that there's a God. Now, they may have suppressed it so well that you might have to use some apologetics that we studied last year in order to get them to think and to remove some of that satanically induced blindness that's on their soul to get right straight to the core of the problem. That's what Paul was having to do when he ministered on Mars Hill. That he knew those people deep down knew that there was a God. In this passage, he's said that at least four times. So he's insisting upon it. But even though they knew God, or they understand that God exists, there were uh, a couple things that they refused to do. One of the things was that they refused to glorify him as God. The New American Standard says to honor him as God. That means to give him the respect that he deserves as God. That's something that they absolutely refused to do. And the second thing that they refuse to do, even though they know him, they refuse to give thanks to him. First, they refuse to honor him, or they refuse to glorify him. Now, I'm not talking about believers right now. I want you to listen carefully, because this might upset your theological apple cart just a teeny bit. This is something that is expected of the unbeliever. Watch. I'm not saying that that you have to fall down on your knees before you you can accept Jesus Christ as Savior, but this is what God expects 
When someone comes to the realization that God exists, he doesn't expect a cavalier, take-it-or-leave-it attitude from that person. He expects an attitude from that person, you're God and I'm not. Now, what do I need to do to be rightly associated with you? And then they may never say those words. They may, the words may never even be formed in their soul. But that's the attitude, the underlying attitude of soul that God expects of them. And they need to, s- to demonstrate some gratitude. This is the unbeliever that Paul is speaking about. But since they won't do that, Paul is saying this proves that they're without excuse. That would be what, what Paul is implying. Actually, he's more than implying it. He's coming right out and saying it. Is This is what the norm should be. If someone comes to the realization that God exists, the norm, a normal human being, and we spoke about that last time and the time before, there are, there are people that don't fall into this category that are less than normal intellectually, that maybe they were born that way, maybe they became that way from an accident or illness or, or some sort, but those people are setting us aside into a separate category for a moment. If you're normal, you should, when, come, when you come face-to-face with God, recognize Him as God. And if He's God and you're not, then there should be a little bit of reverence there, maybe a little bit of fear. And Paul says these people don't have that. So these are two things that our, require, our, our Creator requires of us as the, His creation. Now, there are more. I believe that he requires of us. But these are two basic things. And there are two things that he doesn't put up with. Disrespect and ingratitude. Now, the context here is the unbeliever. So you might be right now thinking, well, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. This passage has nothing to do with me. And I'm going to tell you, that's where you just made your mistake. Because God's attitude with regard to his own person is no different for the believer or the unbeliever there are certain things that god expects of his creation and two of the most basic are respect and gratitude and that goes whether you're a believer just coming to to the knowledge that god i'm sorry an unbeliever just coming to the knowledge that god exists or whether you're a believer that's been a believer for a long time so yes you can learn a lot about god tonight from what Paul says here. Disrespect and ingratitude were the things that marked these people. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now that would be bad enough, but it gets worse. Uh, They don't leave it there. This is a downward spiral that these poor folks get in. The Greek word that is the next word in the sentence is translated in the English, but, and in Greek there are really... Two and a half ways to say, but there's a there's a there's an extremely extremely mild way that's usually translated and, and so I kind of set that aside for a second. But then there's a mild way of saying but, then there's a real strong way to say but. It's the Greek word Allah, a l l a. And when you see that word, there's a huge contrast between one of the phrases and the other phrase, other phrase. So what Paul's saying in verse 21 is that any creature that has a certain amount of intellect that is a rational creature, should be expected to honor God as God when they recognize him from nature. They should be expected to give thanks to God as God, but there's a huge contrast between what is expected and what these people do. Instead of doing that, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart 
was darkened, and later on we're going to find out that they end up worshiping that which God created. They refuse in their soul to worship the Creator and end up worshiping that which He has created. Now, how sad is that? So Allah is the strongest adversative conjunction in the Greek language. It's translated, but they did exactly the opposite of what God required, and it'll be explained in these next couple of verses. They became futile in their thinking. The word that's translated here, futile, can be understood from the Greek language as futile, or it could be understood to be given over to worthlessness, to worthlessness. I can't think of very many things that would be worse than for someone to say, my thinking is worthless. I mean, that you're, what, what comes out of your thought process is so much a part of your being. For someone to say your thinking is worthless, it's, Paul's really telling their lives have, are becoming worthless. Uh, worth, or it can be translated, become vain. But it's all the same idea. You see it, futility, worthlessness, to become vain. It's not very complimentary. So once they make this rejection, once they make the initial rejection, it's because of suppression. And now they uh, have become, um, their minds have become futile, the New American Standard says, in their speculations. The Greek word really is best understood, it's dialogismois, it's a word that means thinking, not speculation so much. But thinking, and outside of the New Testament, when this word is used, it can indicate just neutral thinking. But in the New Testament, pretty much every time this word is used, it indicates evil thinking. Not necessarily immoral, because there's more to evil than just immorality. But uh, evil thinking. So they became futile in their thinking, just so long as you understand that this is not good thinking. It's evil thinking. And their foolish heart was darkened. You think Paul's one of those kind of guys that beat around the bush? No, sir. He let them know exactly the way it was. He didn't just he didn't build them up and sugarcoat the thing. Uh, he's talking to people who reside in Rome. At the time, at this time, the intellectual capital of the world. Now there was there was some intellectual activity that was pretty serious in Alexandria, Egypt. At this time, certainly Athens was still an intellectual capital. But he's writing to the intellectuals. Not just the people reading this, but the people who would read it after it's passed along by those in the Roman church. He's not very complimentary to those who claim that there's no God because he said deep down inside, you know that there is. And since you have suppressed that, your thinking has become futile and your foolish heart was darkened. The word foolish here means pertaining to a lack of capacity for insight and understanding senseless is another way to translate it. No Roman intellectual would have appreciated very much Paul saying that their heart was, uh, didn't lack a, did not have a capacity for insight or understanding and it was senseless. But it was getting their attention. Now in the New Testament, the word heart is broad in meaning, denoting, and I quote here, the thinking, feeling, willing ego of man with particular regard to his responsibility before God. Another way of saying that is the heart really indicates the whole person uh, from time to time in the New, the New Testament. And so that's what Paul's going after here. It's their whole being. 
their whole being has become darkened and foolish. And it's because of the initial decision that they made to suppress the truth. And I'm going to tell you something. This happens to unbelievers. It's going to happen to you and me too. Every time we suppress the truth, every time you, you look right straight at the truth, and I'm talking about the truth of the Word of God, and you say, yes, I understand that, and every time you say no to it, something happens in your soul. And it's damaging to the soul, and it's traumatic to the soul, and you wonder why you have these conflicts in the soul. And it's because you've said no to the truth. So this is just as applicable to the believer as it is to the unbeliever. Our hearts can become darkened as well. Our inner being, the thinking, feeling, willing ego of man can become darkened. So at the very center of every person who rejects God, a darkness has settled. And in the New Testament particularly, you have a darkness and a light motif. And Christians are supposed to be a light, not a darkness to the world. We're supposed to be a revelation to the world. We're not supposed to make it worse for them. We're supposed to turn the light on. We're not supposed to turn the light off. And Paul's very passionate as he says this. Those who reject God over time develop what I'm going to call tonight a spiritual mental illness. They may have a very high IQ, but at the same time, they have such self-induced, keyword, self-induced soul trauma that their thought processes are characterized by futility and worthlessness. Since this can hardly be described as healthy, that's why I'm using the word illness, a spiritual slash mental illness. I'm, I'm in no way ascribing all mental illness to this category. Please don't, don't think that. But I'm saying that when one makes, when one purposefully and willfully continues to make bad decisions. And what I mean by bad decisions are decisions that go against what they know to be true. Can't you see, without even delving into this passage, doesn't that make sense that once we continually reject truth, our souls can't handle that. Our conscience can't handle that. That's what J. Buzoseski is talking about in his book, Revenge of the Conscience. God gave you that conscience, and it's going to come back at you, and it's not going to let it set still. So you've got to do something with it. You either have to then accept the truth, and as a, as a believer who rejects truth, the way that would work is you say, yes, Father, I've sinned. What I did was wrong, and I recognize that. That's one way of getting out of that. And then once you get out of it, repent from it and get moving back in the right direction. For the believer, that's the solution to this. For the unbelievers to say, yes, God, you do exist, and, and I need to know you. And then God is responsible for bringing the gospel to you. And then when you get the gospel... You've got to say yes or no there, too. So it, it comes in many stages. But what I want you to see, and I want you to walk away from here tonight, is the, the danger to your soul to have truth rejected by your will. Some people seem like they have it easier because they're, they don't expose themselves to the truth. You know, I, I know maybe somebody... Because I, I kind of know how you think sometimes because I get your emails and stuff. <laughs> you know, you think, say, well, maybe I would be better off if I just didn't have any truth to reject. You know, just get them to just, just get enough to get myself saved and then 
then not expose myself to truth anymore so that therefore I couldn't have this spiritual slash mental illness that would come from rejecting the truth consistency. No, you're missing the point there. The point would be, why fight it? Why insist on rebellion? Why not just accept what God says is true and then be faithfully obedient to it? I, I know that's not going to sell a million books, nor do I care if it does or not. It's, it's not... It's, it's nothing that they're going to have you on 60 Minutes and, and somebody says, well, what's your secret to success? Well, learn the Word of God and obey it. Faithfully obey it. Just quit suppressing the truth. But I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's one of the most precious revelations of the Word of God, what Paul is doing in this passage here. So, professing to be wise, Paul says in verse 22, they became fools. This is perhaps the most ironic and, in my view, sad aspect of all of this. In this state, there is a contrast between what is illusion and what is reality. The reality is, I don't care how high your IQ is, the reality is it is an incredible tragedy to have a very IQ and to use that intelligence to reject the very basic knowledge that God gives you. There are going to be plenty of people in hell with very high IQs. There's going to be people in hell with, with medium and lower IQs too. Now, now past a certain level, it doesn't go on both ends of the scale because you get low enough, and I do believe you're not accountable. That's something we spoke up two weeks ago. But on the high end, you don't ever get so high you're not accountable. You may get so high you can't match your socks or remember to comb your hair or take a bath, you know, but you never get so high you're not accountable before God. And so this is what's so ironic and, and tragic is is their life is an illusion. It's not reality. And that is tragic. And again, I mean, this could be applied to the believer as well. I hope that your life is not an illusion. I hope it's a reality. I'm talking about believer in Jesus Christ, but it could be an illusion. Some, some believers in Jesus Christ think that they are very wise, but spiritually, they're actually very foolish. And it all has to do with our reception of the truth. What are we going to do with it once we have it? In refusing to pay homage to God, when his works are recognized, people claim to be acquiring wisdom. In reality, the opposite is true. They are becoming foolish. Now I want you to note this next statement. Note it well. Those who reject God that are becoming foolish instead of wise, are on a downward slope. Not in the preparatory stage in the quest to find God. They are on the downward side. Let me see if I can uh, show you in this way. We'd have a slope here, and then we'd have one here. And we'd say God is up here. There are some of those folks that um, that you hear interviewed and and that... you know the kind that, that have the little fake glasses, the little fake professor glasses that they don't really need glasses, but they wear them when they get on television? A lot of actors will do that to, to be taken seriously because sometimes people don't take actors seriously. So if they're going to be taken seriously, they've got to you know, mess their hair up and look like a college professor. Those, those kind of people, they, they think they're becoming very wise. And some people might say, well, I'm climbing the ladder. In my rejection of God, I'm climbing the ladder and then... You know, I'm going through Buddhism and Hinduism and every other ism that there is, and then up here I'm finally going to get to God, and then everything's going to be okay. That's not what Paul says. Actually, what Paul says is this. 
You have the knowledge of God, knowledge of God, knowledge of God, and then, whoops, here we go. Drawing a downward slope. It's not like you're just around the corner from finding him every time you reject him. Every time you reject him, actually, you're going further down the slope. You know who the perfect biblical example of this was? Anybody? Think Old Testament. Think Old Testament. Exodus. Pharaoh. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Pharaoh was an example of that. He said, no, 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 about five times. And I'm being fairly general in my categorization. But about five times he says, no, no, no. And then God says, okay, it doesn't really matter what you want to say from here on out. <laughs> You're way on the downside of this roller coaster. Now, I guess theoretically, there, there probably was a time even toward the end that Pharaoh could have come around, but God in his sovereignty knew that there wasn't, and he was going to use it to his glory. What if God, wishing to make, wishing to make his glory known to the nations, allowed this to take place? So, no, they're not getting smarter they're not in a preparatory stage for finding God. They're on a downward slope, and this is, again, a tragedy. This is nothing we should be happy about tonight. It should break our hearts because it breaks God's heart. Paul's estimation of non-Christian faiths becomes crystal clear in this verse. He makes the same point, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4. I would love, because this never happened, this is fantasy, but I would love to see what would happen if you put the Apostle Paul on 60 Minutes. Or if you put the Apostle Paul in a one-on-one interview with Diane Sawyer in front of a national audience, that would be a trip. Because the Apostle Paul, and I'm sure he would do it in love, because that's what our job is, is to speak the truth in love. But that would have been an interesting interview, because Paul doesn't really have any respect whatsoever for any faith other than Christianity. And you might say, well, you know what? He just wouldn't fit in with our society very well. You know, he, he, he just wouldn't make it in this culture. You know what? I, I bet he'd make it. Because I think people are dying for the truth. They, are, they, are, they already know what they have is not working. You know, if, if you come across New Orleans sometime on a, on a Saturday morning and, and come across a drunk that's literally still in the gutter from the night before, I just, I just bet you they don't really want to sit down and discuss their philosophy with you. I think they'd probably like to hear how they might could get out of that gut or not stay there. The world needs the truth, and I think the Apostle Paul actually would be very well re- received by many, and then he would be hated by others. Now, continuing the sentence that Paul began in verse 22, when we get to verse 23, this verse graphically portrays the foolishness of idolatry that lies at the faith of at the heart of all faiths or religions, not based on a reverent and thankful response to the revelation of God. And there's only one, and that'd be Christianity. Mankind is hopelessly religious. If one chooses to rebel against the infinite personal creator of the universe, they will turn to something else to revere and to worship. In Paul's day, it was common for that thing to be in the image of something that God created. Look at verse 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You might be thinking, well, in our day, we've become more sophisticated than that. We would never place, say, a carving of an eagle 
on the mantle and worship it as God. No, we wouldn't. In our culture, it would be much more subtle. Something will be placed on the mantle of your life. Something will be placed at the center of your life. It's either going to be God or an idol. And wait, you say, you know, there's what about my family? What about my ministry? That's a subtle one there. What about my ministry? That should be at the center of my universe. No, listen carefully. Didn't stutter. It's either God or it's idolatrous. I'm talking about at the center. I'm not talking about the fact that you can value other things and, and should, by biblical command, value other things. Something is going to be at the center of your life. It might be your career. It might be your retirement fund. It might be your hobby. It might be your family. And it might be, and most often is, yourself. In fact, secular humanism, which is essentially the worship of self, is the most common form of idolatry today. This is just as foolish as worshiping a cow or a bird or a snake. Remember that old cigarette commercial, you've come a long way, baby? Well, maybe not. All we've done is exchange something that can be carved and placed up on the mantle for a statement that you get in the mail that you open up and tells you how our stocks are doing or the hobby that we have or the career path that we have or anything that we're misguided enough to place at the center of our life other than God. So we're just as foolish today. We haven't come a long way. As a matter of fact, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon knew what he was talking about. Now, to close this up, some practical application of what Paul tells us in these verses. And the practical application actually is taken from verses 18 through 23, not just the last couple of verses. But I want you to notice the response again that God demands at God consciousness now this, and this is what I said maybe a little new, but a careful examination of this text tells us that this is what God expects at God consciousness. He expects reverent respect and thankfulness. Reverent respect and thankfulness. Now those two things don't get you to heaven. I'm not in any way implying that. But I'm implying that's what God expects when believer or unbeliever comes into his presence. Reverent respect and thankfulness. Even though they know God exists, those who willfully suppress the truth and unrighteousness do two things. They fail to glorify God as God. They fail to honor Him as God or give Him the respect He deserves of God, and they fail to give thanks to Him. A neutral or indifferent attitude is not seen here. Now, this has more ramifications than the time we have for tonight, but sometimes I wonder if we made too little of this concept historically. We'll have to cover it at a different time because our time is, is up for tonight. And I want to say this, this next principle. While speaking directly to the one who rejects the revelation of God in nature, and I assume that's nobody here tonight, but this passage speaks directly to the one who has rejected the revelation of God in nature. It can also have significance to the believer in Jesus Christ. When one willfully rejects, the knowledge of God that is in his word, foolishness of mind and soul follows. And I think that's putting it mildly. 
So again, when anyone willfully rejects the truth, psychological trauma is inflicted on the soul. It's a self-inflicted wound. A slippery slope that begins with rebellion against the truth moves to suppression of the truth and then substitution of that which is false for the truth. Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we come to this this type of teaching, and I, I thank you so much for the Apostle Paul's faithfulness under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in writing this down for us. Father, we pray that, that as we come upon truth in our lives as believers, that we would take it seriously and understand the ramifications of looking at it and then rejecting it. Father, if we have done that, we, we bring that before you and pray that you will, you will motivate us to confess and to move back into an area of reality within our lives and not just illusion. And Father, we can't help but think of those who have rejected you just in your infinite personal being when we study this passage. And we pray for people like those that were quoted tonight. I pray that not being cruel in any way, Father, but that you would not give them a moment's worth of peace in their life until they change their mind. For I'd so much rather them have moments of, um, of a non-peace in the soul than spend eternity in hell. So I do pray for those folks. I, I pray that you would bring people into their lives and uh, that would set them straight and give them the gospel and that, and that they too might make the decision that they need to make. Now, Father, as we go our way, I just pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.